Welcome to The Jury Is Out, a podcast by and for trial lawyers looking for better ways to serve their clients. Your co-hosts are John Simon, founder of The Simon Law Firm, and St. Louis attorney Eric Veith. Hi, this is John Simon. I'm Eric Veith. Welcome to another episode of The Jury Is Out. And today we're going to cover another of the several part series on Vordire, picking a jury. I think one of the logical places to start is what is the law? What law applies to the topic? It's so important to know the law no matter what, no matter what you're doing, but especially, especially in Vordire. Both of us have our offices and practice in Missouri and we have our whole career. And so our focus today on the legal aspects of Vordire is going to focus on Missouri law. Correct. And one area to look at is the statutory basis, which would be in chapter, you said 494, the Missouri statutes. There was an article, a, a, an article in the Journal of the Missouri Bar back in May, June of 2010, and it was a very, very comprehensive article. The authors really did a great job of outlining what some of the legal issues are that come up in Vordire. Yeah, maybe we should give them a shout out. Michael Matula and Nicole Henninger co-wrote an article called The Law of Jury Selection, in Missouri State Court. And it's a it's a great foundation for anyone who's going to walk into a courtroom and do voir dire. So I guess, where do we start? One of the things in voir dire is, in order to understand what the law is, I think you first need to look at what is the purpose of voir dire. And there, there's a Missouri case, I believe it was a Missouri Supreme Court case, that described it as, the, the purpose is as follows to discover bias or prejudice in order to select a fair and impartial jury. And you know what I would add to that, to kind of refine it a little more, is to discover hidden bias or prejudice in order to select a fair and impartial jury. So let's talk about the scope of voir dire. In other words, what can you cover? Is there anything that's off limits? The law in this area isn't crystal clear, to say the least. And I think that's because of the nature of the subject matter. Standard of review is abuse of discretion by the trial court. Correct. It's a holistic enterprise and simple words or simple phrases will not be determinative. The case law is explicit on this. You have to defer to the trial judge to look at demeanor and you have to consider the context of everything that's said about that uh, by or about that juror to make these determinations, which it's, it's kind of a absurd seeming. You know, you're going to decide whether this person is neutral or not based upon you know, sometimes a few comments, but it's not going to boil down to one thing the juror said, because maybe they'll blurt one thing out and then maybe they'll pull back and say, I didn't really mean that. And then the trial judge has to decide yes or no. You you know, I I think when, when you, when you're conducting a voir dire and you get an objection to the subject matter uh, that you're going into, you need to always keep in mind the purpose of the voir dire. And that is you need to explore the thoughts and beliefs of the members of the panel to discover not just their express but hidden biases. And in order to do that, I don't know how you do that unless you're given some very good leeway in terms of what areas you can get into. Under equal protection, under the Batson case, you cannot make a challenge or a strike based upon gender, ethnic origin, or race. So okay. those are the peremptory uh, limitations. So the next item, I look at some of the jury instructions and cover what those instructions may be. We have a case that's uh, going out to trial in about a month from now, and we had our pretrial earlier, I think it was last week we had the pretrial, and the judge in that case reads certain instructions before the voir dire, 
for instance, he reads typically would read the burden of proof instruction, the definition of negligence, and I think that is so helpful because the attorneys typically get into those issues, and then there's an argument about, well, they're misstating the law, or what is the law, or an objection directed to that. But certainly, I think that you have a, a right to get into what the law is. For instance, the concept of punitive damages. I mean, I know there's a significant number of people I've had by, by experience who just don't like the concept. They don't think it works. Right. And uh, as that fine article points out, there's a tripwire here. You can't tell the jury the law in this case is, and then read an instruction because some of those instructions haven't been given yet. So the, uh, the mandatory instructions have been given. Those seem to be fair game to talk about those topics. But what about if the court does not issue a punitive damage instruction? Well, I, you so know, you have to be careful about right, how you phrase that. Right. In some cases where we have a punitive damage claim, you're not certain you're going to be allowed to submit on punitive until punitives until your case is completed, or even after the conclusion of the defendant's case. And the way I handle that in Vordire is to tell the panel members at the end of the case, the judge may allow you to consider what's called punitive damages. And that way you're covered either way. If you don't get to submit on punitive damages, you're covered. And then if you do, I think what it does is it tells the, the jury that the judge has carefully considered the evidence in the case, and she's determined that it's sufficient to allow them to consider punitive damages. That's exactly right. And that's what the cases will, will tell you. You just have to be careful to say the judge may issue this instruction or that you may be given this instruction later. And I need to talk to you about your feelings regarding that issue because it might be given to you to consider. So what other issues on scope of Vordire? How about the facts of the case, Eric? I think we're looking at the same type of problem that we don't yet have the evidence in front of the jury. Uh, so you, you might need to temper your introduction to that is you may hear evidence about this topic. There's some limitations about what you can do with facts. And for instance, you can't make an argument with those facts. Argument is not allowed in Vordire. Certainly you want to educate the jurors as to various issues that will come up. And in order to educate them, you have to talk about what you expect the evidence to be and to then elicit what the reactions are to those things that will potentially come out. So you, you have to touch on facts, no doubt about it, but there are some limitations. You can't go in and say, well, if we prove A, B, and C, then what, you know, what will your decision be or what will your judgment, will you support a finding of negligence under those circumstances? And, and that's really not what we do in Vordire, not what we want to do, but there are certain facts that may be in your case that are maybe controversial or the type of fact that may influence or unduly influence somebody's judgment, even though they don't have anything to do with it. I'll give you a couple examples. One is a felony conviction, right? I mean, that's happened many, many times before where I've represented someone who has a felony conviction. It's a civil case. They testify. The jury hears about it. There still may be somebody on that panel who is going to hold that against them. Maybe it's somebody who's been the victim of a robbery or something like that. And, you know, what I do is I ask, would the fact of a felony conviction by itself tend to cause you to lean one way or another on the issue of damages, for instance, right? On the issue of whether the product was defective or not, on the issue of whether or not my client can recover. Those are things I think you need to explore. Government standards. I do a lot of product liability work. I do some automotive product liability work. The government standards that apply to certain industries. The automotive industry is heavily regulated. There are federal motor vehicle safety standards. And there's a good portion of the general public, I think, based on my experience, that no matter what the law is, no matter what the facts are in your case, 
if they believe a product, an automobile, passed the government standards, that's the end of the line. They're not going to consider whether the product was defective and unreasonably dangerous. That issue is decided as far as they're concerned. And I will tell you, I've had panels where maybe as many as 20% of the people on the panel, once they're told that they passed the government standards, now what they don't know is car companies wrote the standards, right? And they're minimum standards. And every car that's ever been recalled in the history of recalling, every one of those recalled cars passed every government standard, yet they were dangerous enough to be recalled, right? But again, it's just one of those facts in the case that it could be poison for you and you really need to bring it out. We have handled a lot of strict liability cases, product liability cases, and those crashworthiness cases where it's tough because it's a cause of action where the, the defendant can be held responsible even in the absence of negligence because the focus is on the product. And, and a lot of people have trouble with that. Lay people are like, well, if we're going to hold the company responsible, they need to have known about it. They need to have been you know, negligent. That's one issue. The other issue is in a crashworthiness case, you may be suing the car manufacturer in a rollover where the roof was not designed well at all, terrible design, very flimsy. It rolls over and the roof crushes and, and paralyzes the occupants. And some people will have a problem and do have a problem with the fact that the car company, you're suing the car company, and the car company didn't cause the accident, right? And it's a crashworthiness doctrine that, you know, it's something people aren't accustomed to, and, and they may not agree with it, but these are certainly things, in my experience, that, you know, you need to cover them. We had an opioid case with massive overprescribing of opioids, and it was against a, 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 a physician and a hospital here in St. Louis. The big issue in the case was the fact that our client was a drug addict. wasn't a drug addict before the doctor overprescribed all the opioids for four or five years, but that was an issue that we found, and it was interesting because those individuals on the panel who thought addiction was a moral issue, a lapse of willpower, overwhelmingly were never going to give this guy anything, no matter what the evidence was in the case. Flip side was those folks who saw addiction as a medical condition drastically different. I mean, drastically different. And so the issue really was, do you have some reservation giving a large sum of money to someone who's a drug addict? I mean, most people do. I think almost everybody has some reservation, but, you know, we were allowed to explore the nature and extent of those feelings. And it got to the point where some people just kind of crossed their arms and said, look, I can't do it. I don't care what the evidence is in this case. I just can't do it. And so how would that have been if we weren't allowed to get into that or explore that? What happens? I'm thinking about the fact that these cases are often very close. A lot of cases settle. A lot of the cases that don't settle are close and, and the parties disagree. And so when we're talking about formed or express, you know, someone might have an uneasiness with a position on an issue. The fear is that this can be this little bit of easiness can cascade into a defense verdict against you. It can be a big mm -hmm. thing. A little things can add up into big things. And what if they're all a little bit uneasy? So as, a, as an attorney, you have to get into these issues. You have to in order to represent your client appropriately. So we talked a little bit here about the purpose of Vordire. We've been talking about the scope of Vordire, what you can get into, what facts you can get into, what facts you should get into. And again, our purpose here is have a good basis to respond to an objection. When you want to get into a certain fact or a certain jury instruction or legal element of the case, 
that you think is going to be a problem. Next, we're going to talk about something that we could go on and on about this for, for a full day, I think, and that's striking a juror for cause. And Eric, you mentioned the standard in 49447 paragraph 1. And again, in Missouri, you get three, in civil cases, you get three preemptory strikes. But you can also strike any jurors who formed or expressed an opinion concerning the matter or any material fact in controversy in any case that may influence the judgment of such person. Another standard, any person whose opinions or beliefs preclude them from following the law as declared by the court and its instructions. So I think the second one's a little easier to ascertain. Can you follow the law? Can you not follow the law? We've discussed this before. You have certain ways of loosening that up and letting people know you're not being judgmental as to whether they're good and decent as people. Great issue. You really have to spend some time explaining to the jurors what, what's going on in Vordire, the purpose of Vordire, letting them know that it's okay to have strong feelings about issues. There's not anybody that doesn't have strong feelings about something. Maybe you were rear-ended by a drunk driver. Uh, maybe you had a dispute with your bank. Maybe the bank foreclosed illegally, you thought, on, on, on your home. Maybe you've had a, a dispute with your health insurance company, not you paying the premiums and they don't want to pay any of the treatment. So everybody has strong feelings about things. So you need to let everybody know that it's okay. You know, it is okay to have strong feelings. And I sometimes talk about how the word bias in the courtroom has a, has a different meaning than outside the courtroom. Nobody wants to be biased about, about anything, but I call it strong feelings, not biased. Maybe you have strong feelings about it, but I think that's something certainly that needs to be covered in the beginning. And, and it, you just need to lower the bar and let everybody know it's okay. We're not going to argue with you. We're not going to fight with you. That's just not going to happen. What about just one example that we can maybe help to illustrate this? Let's say in the opioid addiction case, some number of these uh, potential jurors think, I think addicts are morally deficient people. They're bad people. And here's this attorney up there trying to get me to He's going to get rid of me if I don't come in with my sincerely held opinion on that issue. Well, I think you just need to be honest. You need to be straightforward. But if I come across a juror who I think is going to be great for me but terrible for the, my opponent, I'll bring that out also. I'll say, for instance, the, the sympathy issue is, is one issue. Uh, you know, somebody who comes in and says, well, I hate these big companies. All they care about is their bottom line. They don't care about safety. If they start saying things like that. I think what you need to do to keep your credibility is to say, okay, well, you know, it sounds like you really wouldn't be too fair for, for the other side, and, and for that reason, you might not be a good juror on this case, okay? And so the answer to your question is you want to make sure that you get the people who have strong feelings adverse to one side or another for both sides. If you just go through the voir dire and you focus on the people who you think are going to be unfair or biased for you and get them and get those folks off, uh, and sure, a jury's going to see that and know what you're doing, and they know what you're doing anyway, but you need to be fair about it. I mean, people are biased against the plaintiff, and some of them are biased against the defendant, and, and neither one of them should be on the panel, and you need to make that clear to everybody in the room. The courts need neutrality, or else you have a meaningless trial. You have a kangaroo court if you don't have neutral people in there. It's everything. If, without neutrality, you shouldn't even have the trial, right? So it's, right. it's that important. But there's this metaphor of the, about the table is it, or, or scale or you know, these sorts of things that we, we mentioned to jurors that we're just trying to get people with some emotional distance so it won't interfere with your ability to see things in a 
general, more considered, more flexible way. So one of the things, and, and really what we're talking about here, striking for cause, are some of the legal issues that come up. So you go through the voir dire and you note the jurors that you think should be stricken for cause. And, and most often you'll do it at a break or outside the presence of the jury or at the sidebar where the jurors will leave the room and then you'll have a hearing on, on motions for cause. And you might have identified 20 people, 10 people, 15 people, 50 people, whatever, but you need to go through and you need to argue to the court why you think this particular person should be stricken from the panel and keeping the standard in mind. And what I wanna talk about are some things that come up. One of the things that comes up all the time is you get somebody to say, I hate lawyers, or they just tell you, you know, I hate lawyers, I hate lawsuits, I don't think anybody should file a lawsuit, I'd never file a lawsuit, I think anybody who files a lawsuit should be put in jail. And then the other lawyer gets up and says, well, you can put all that aside, right, and follow the law that the judge gives you, and they go, sure, you bet, I'm on, I got it, okay? That's sort of an extreme example, but that's what comes up, I think, more than any legal issue is, can a juror absolve themselves or evaluate themselves in terms of, of whether they're biased or not? What, is, what does the law say on that? How, how much is enough, I guess? How much is enough, and, and what's the standard for, for getting somebody off for cause? There, there's going to be closed cases, right? And it's up to the judge, and it's uh, reviewed on the abuse of discretion, and it's uh, run and gun. One juror who's kind of shifting the shifting sands back and forth, and the judge is going to make a decision on that, and I guess you have to live with it. Yeah, here's the thing, too. I think two things I would recommend that will help you in your argument that a particular person should be struck for cause. Number one, make a good record. Uh, not just one sentence or one word. If somebody says, I feel this way, you really need to build that record for the court. Why do you feel that way? How long have you felt that way? Tell me more about that. Is there any particular instance or experience that you've had that causes you to feel that way? And really build that record, get them talking about it, make them feel comfortable that you certainly don't want to fight them when, when they're given those opinions. You, you really want to thank them for being honest and open and really let them talk as much as they can and tell you as much as they can about why they feel so strongly about that particular issue. That'll really go a long way to having the court strike that potential juror. The other thing is you don't just look at the one sentence or one answer. You gotta look at the, at the whole context. You have to look at their demeanor. You have to look at their credibility sometimes, right? Well, if somebody goes on and on about how they hate lawsuits, they don't want anybody suing doctors or anybody else. And then at the end of that, they say, yeah, I'm okay here, everything's gonna be good. That's a credibility issue. That's something that the court needs to determine for each person. So that provides a challenge, but it also provides an opportunity. And each individual in each circumstance has to be judged on its own. It is an abuse of discretion. I think of Vordire as being, it's like drinking out of a fire hydrant. There's so much going on around you. And even with one particular juror, you're trying to figure out what's going on. You might have to wear your, your therapist hat. When you talk about issues, they might say, I don't have an opinion about that. But you elicit it through good questions. And sometimes they need to be non-leading questions to get some talking going on. And then the juror might say something that they did not know they held that opinion until they said it. So another issue that comes up in the area of striking a, a juror for cause, a potential juror for cause, is rehabilitation. And one of the issues, there's some case law on this also, is rehabilitation by the court. 
when is it proper for the court or improper for the court to question the juror? And I had an example, I, I, I had an experience where someone said what I thought was sufficient to get him off. And there was no attempt to rehabilitate by the opposing counsel, by the other attorney. And it was one of those situations where we were running short a little bit, I thought getting close to running short on, on jurors. And the trial judge rehabilitated several of the jurors. And same way, you know, can you be fair? I couldn't imagine a situation where a juror is going to look at the judge sitting up high on the bench with the robe on, and when that judge says, can you follow the law as I give it to you, the answer to that question is going to be absolutely yes, no matter what. It's not the court's place to rehabilitate someone who has already obviously stated something that shows that they, they shouldn't be on the panel. Now, if, as I said, completely different scenario if the first attorney asks him, would that cause a problem? Yes, it would. And then another attorney rehabilitates him, and you got the same person saying two different things. Obviously, I think the court should, and it's appropriate for the, the court to intervene at that point and, and sort of get to the bottom of it. There's a footnote I'd like to add here. It's called the Mansfield Rule in Missouri. And what the general rule is is that whatever goes on back in that jury room stays in the jury room. But there's two exceptions to that. One is if someone brings in bigotry, racial or gender bigotry, that's for a game. And the courts want to know about that after a verdict. They're willing to go back and say, did a juror speak up in a bigoted way and that directed the verdict? They want to know about that. They also want to know whether a juror introduced independently gained facts regarding the case. Maybe the juror went to the internet, looked some things up, went to the scene of the accident, and came back into the juror room and said, hey, check out this screenshot I, I made of this product. They want to know that too. What goes on in the juror room stays in the juror room with those two exceptions. So in conclusion, I guess, and we're, we've been talking about some of the legal issues that you uh, confront during voir dire, I would say in conclusion, at least in Missouri, most of these issues, there's no bright line. There's no black and white. It's a gray area. It's within the discretion of the court. So number one, know the law. Number two, build a good record during your questioning. And also know your judge. That's it for this uh, session. I'm John Simon. I'm Eric Peeth. Glad having you with us, and we'll see you on the next one. John and Eric would like to hear from you. They invite you to email your comments and suggestions to comments at thejuryisout.law. To learn more about the dedicated trial lawyers of the Simon Law Firm, visit simonlawpc.com.